But I'd love for you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Uh, again, it's such a privilege to pursue Jesus with you uh, tonight. Easter is a special day, of course. I also kind of feel it's a little strange because we say this is the day we celebrate the resurrection. Friends, we do that every week, amen? I mean, we're, 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 we're big on the resurrection here at Passion Creek Church. And so we're going to be looking at that. And um, I think today is an extra special day. We're having baptisms. And, be, and with that, I love all four, but the, my favorite is my oldest daughter. She's six. She's getting baptized. So we're going to end the service with that. It's going to be awesome. Woohoo! Exactly. Okay, so it's going to be fantastic. There's so many different ways to have an Easter message uh, throughout the church, all throughout the world today. A lot of people, some pastors have used this as a time to look at the historical accuracy of the resurrection, and we've done that in the past. Now, others are really looking at the book of Romans and kind of marching through what the gospel is and pointing to the importance of the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Others are marching through each day of the Holy Weekend. Some people emphasized Friday Hopefully, a lot of people emphasized Sunday. What we're going to look at together as a faith family is really like almost all of Matthew chapter 26. So I hope that you guys are ready. Uh, We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture uh, tonight, but nothing better, right? Amen. We're going to look at God's word together. I think it's going to be really good. Uh, Really, kind of the angle we're taking, the title of today's Easter message is The Meaning of Life. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 26 and asking the question, what is the meaning of life? And Easter, we as the people of God come together and we proclaim, without the resurrection, there really isn't a meaning of life. But with the resurrection, there is meaning in abundance. And I've come to hear, bring good news. The tomb is empty. Amen? Amen. Let us begin with prayer. Father, we're so grateful for your love. We're so grateful for your mercy. God, I praise you as even in this church building today, there's already been so many services glorifying your name. And I pray, God, as we at Passion Creek Church, I just pray, God, that we'd open our hearts to you tonight. I pray, God, that there would be a resurrection for some of us. Maybe a resurrection of the soul to give our life to you for the first time. Maybe a resurrection of purpose and meaning. But God, I pray that we give our attention to you and to you alone. And we're so grateful that you didn't leave us here. We're so grateful. Even though our sin separated us from you, you came down to make things right. And we're so grateful that even today we can go back to that tomb and it is still empty. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody says, amen. Amen. In 2019, David Brooks wrote a really good book called Second Mountain. If you've been around our church for any length of time, you've probably heard me talk about it because it talks a lot about the midlife crisis. So if you feel like you're there, you're knocking on that door, go ahead and check out the book Second Mountain. But in one of his chapters, he prophetically describes four crises that we are in as Americans. And I think it's pretty fascinating because he wrote this in 2019. If only he knew how bad it would get in 2020. He marks these four crises. Number one, he says we have a loneliness crisis. It says 35%, again, this is before the virus, 35% of Americans over 45, look, are chronically lonely. And that doesn't mention those who are under 45. With that, from 2006 to 2016, suicide rates for ages 10 to 17 increased 70%. Friends, you and I, we have a loneliness crisis. But not just that. He goes on to describe we have a distress crisis. It's pretty fascinating. In our time, in our era, self-sacrifice no longer makes sense. There is no institution, no organization, no country for many of us worth dying for. This is foreign for for generations of the past. Not only do we have a distress crisis, and I think you all can definitely attest to this, we have a tribalism crisis. 
It used to be that we would gather communities based around mutual affection, but what gets a lot more talked about and what grows faster are tribes based around mutual hatred. So we find who we like because we all get together and agree about these other people that we don't like. So again, we have the loneliness crisis, which is prevalent. We have the distrust crisis, which is still prevalent. We have the tribalism crisis. But the last one I want us to look at specifically tonight, you and I, we are going through a meaning crisis. David Brooks, the quote should be on the screen. He says this about it. He says, when you take away a common moral order and tell everybody to find their own definition of the mystery of life, most people will come up empty. But friends, because the tomb is empty, your meaning isn't. And that's what I want us to examine tonight in Matthew chapter 26. We're going to look at three radically different ways you and I, even today, can try to find meaning in life. We're going to look at three different groups. We're going to look at the religious elites that's going to be in chapter 26. Then we're going to make our way to Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. And then we're going to make our way to Simon Peter. Okay, so as we look at this context, I want us to examine. I'd love for us to, to honestly ask the question, am I searching for meaning like one of these people? And I believe tonight will be helpful, especially how we end. So for context, anytime you read your Bible, you want to maybe read a little bit before. And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is teaching the disciples uh, the difference between the sheep and the goats. His whole teaching is to say there are some people who it looks like they're in the church, but in reality they are not. And so the reader, as we read Matthew 25, we have to ask ourselves this question. Who is a sheep and who is a goat? In fact, in verse 46 of chapter 25, it says, And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So I want you to imagine that. While we're reading Matthew 26, we just had in mind, some will have eternal punishment, others will have eternal life. And now I believe Matthew sets that up and now shows you three different people and which ones we need to determine, we can tell, who are the sheep, the righteous, and who are the goats, the unrighteous. And that is what we're going to look at today. So this is group number one. Write this down in your notes. By the way, we have notes at passioncreek.com. If you'd like to use your phone, you can email your notes at the very end of the service. But I have three different groups to describe to you. Number one is what I want to call the mean life. The mean life are the religious elites. We see that in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 1. Let's read that. It says, When Jesus has finished saying all these things, Jesus told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So he's letting them know he's about to, Good Friday's about to happen. But really zero in on verse three. Then the chief priests and the elders of the high people, who I'm calling religious elites, okay, assembled in the courtyard of the high priest who was named Caiaphas. And they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. You read the Gospels, Jesus has encounters with these religious elites many times. And if you read the Gospel over any time, you'll recognize these people are the mean people. Okay, they live that mean life. Especially, um, I think it's on the screen, Matthew 23, uh, verse 4 through 5. Is that the next slide? Is Matthew 23, verse 4. Jesus, Jesus is so incredible. He tells, you know us, anybody else, we like to talk bad about people, but like not when they're around, uh, or we tweet at them, right? Jesus does right to their face. He's hanging out with religious elites, and he talks about them. He says, here's what they do, you. He says, they tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders. But look, they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. Next verse. They do everything to be seen by others. 
They enlarge their, what in the world? And lengthen their tassels. <laughs> they do everything, I, all week, I was like, I don't know how to say it, so I'm just going to skip it. They do everything to be, I, Queen Creek education, amen? They do everything to be seen by others. And there are some of you who don't come to church because you met those guys, amen? Right? You're like, amen. Okay, whoa. Okay, you know what I'm saying? Here is what the mean life is. And there's a reason they're mean. Because they found no other meaning in life than to be mean. Write this down. This is the meaning of life for religious elites. The mean life lives to scrutinize and get recognized. This is what the mean life is. Sadly, we have this a lot in the church. They live to scrutinize everyone. Even within the church, stuff that we try to really make sure that we don't do, even like what you wear. We hope you wear something, amen, right? But we don't really want to make a big deal about that. How you talk, how you worship, right? Some people really scrutinize, oh, did that person give? We give online, so that's great. You don't have to like look and see who gave in the buckets, right? And a lot of us, we grow up in this, and there's a lot of religions that operate off of this. We're here to say Christianity, is this is not how it should be. This is not who we are. But in many different faiths, you will never be good enough for a religious elite. In fact, they find so much hope that you're not good enough, and they are so much better. The mean life lives to scrutinize and get recognized. And we talk about this a lot at church, but this is quote-unquote religious people and what they love to do. They love to mark off tallies for God rather than marking out time with God. I want to say if you're here, if you're new at Passion Creek Church, we believe the meaning of the Christian life is not about marking off tallies. It's not about being good enough because, friends, you and I can never be good enough. But it is marking out time. It's having that personal relationship with Jesus. And that's the beauty of the gospel message is God came down to us to get to know us, to meet us, to love us. So we have a lot of people, and rightly so, people say religious people, they scrutinize. They do everything to get recognized. But let me just also argue, we have a lot of non-religious mean people as well. Amen? We have a lot of people who are not in the church world at all, and yet they do this thing as well. They live to scrutinize and get recognized. Just log on to YouTube for five minutes. Go to my most recent YouTube video, and you'll know. Some people are really mean, okay? They live to scrutinize and get recognized. People build whole careers off of ripping people down off of Twitter, right? Entire industries are built on reactions. The news media, right, is about tearing people down. And the sad part is a lot of them fly under the radar. Nobody calls them out because they don't have religion as their banner. They're just kind of just mean people. And in fact, there's a lot of people who spend a lot of their living tearing down good, wholesome Christians. This is the reality. When you live the mean life, here it is. You're willing to scrutinize anyone in order to be recognized by everyone. Why? If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, there's not much meaning to this life, so you might as well get recognized. This is the hope that we have if Jesus did not rise again. And so I'm here to submit to you, look at these chief priests, these religious elites, the Pharisees. This life, the mean life, always leads to self-righteousness always leads to exhaustion. You're disgusted with people all the time, and it's lonely because you think you're better than everyone, and eventually people say, okay, I'm going to stop hanging out with you then. Friends, I believe the gospel is such a better message, but again, if Jesus did not come, it is possible that the mean life might be worth living because we're all just going to die. You might as well tear people down along the way and get famous, okay? 
2021. All right, this is what we're called to do. Not really. So that is what I want to call the mean life. And so remember, we looked at verse 46, who eternal punishment versus eternal life. The first group we see are these religious elites, and they are just mean. Okay, I'm here to tell you the gospel has a better answer. Here's the next group of people that we see in the text. I want to call it the meaningless life. This is Judas Iscariot. We have the meaningless life. Look at verse 14 in chapter 26. It says, Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, he's the one who betrayed Jesus, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him, being Jesus, over to you? So they waited out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. I love it. Later down, you'll see, it's incredible that he does it this way. What Judas decides to do to identify Jesus, he goes and he kisses him. He says, the man whom I kiss is the one you should, that you should, will crucify. And I heard this, uh, John O., uh, he's a good pastor friend of mine. He said, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, so we would know that someone's public affection for Jesus might not be telling the whole story. I thought that was so good. But I think we need to be careful here. We miss out on so many lessons because you and I all assume we would never be Judas, right? We would never betray Jesus this way. But I want us to know why he actually denied Jesus, why he decided to betray Jesus. And the story is in verse 6 through 13 is why he got so upset. We're going to run through this. He got so upset, and this is why he decided to betray Jesus. Jesus went to Bethany into a house of Simon the leper. And we learn here there was this woman who approached with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Commentators say this perfume is literally worth a salary, a whole year's of wages. And what does the woman do? She washes the feet of Jesus. And this makes Judas angry because he's thinking, I am in ministry in order to get as much money as possible, and you're wasting it. You're wasting all of these investments. You're wasting all of these resources. And it led him to betray Jesus because he loved Jesus for how efficient he was. Think about it. Judas was in love of money. Jesus would roll up, see 5,000 people. I just need like a few fish, right? And then he just multiplies it, has stuff left over. He loves how efficient Jesus is. He was innovative. He walked on water, right? He was so incredible in what he did. And so Jesus, Judas started to recognize that Jesus was now not as efficient, was now betraying his core values. Here's the core value. Here's the, here's the next uh, point. The meaningless life lives to accelerate and innovate. When you have a meaningless life, all you can do is accelerate and innovate. I believe Judas was absolutely guilty of this. He hung out with Jesus because things kept getting better and better. The crowds were getting larger and larger. The food kept multiplying and multiplying. But then Jesus turns a corner when he goes to get crucified, and he starts giving everything away, losing his crowd, telling thousands of people, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and they walk away. And Judas begins to doubt and wants to betray Jesus. The reality is we are swimming in a culture today that is telling us the meaning of life is to accelerate and innovate. Like, when's the last time you saw, like, an iPhone 7 even? Like, you just want to laugh, right? It's like, you own that? How ancient are you, right? If you have an iPhone 7 here, you're the man. You're amazing. Or the woman. Or whatever, okay? But I'm just saying, we are bathed in this culture of being horrified at the thought of being left behind. Judas did not want to be left behind, and so he's willing to sacrifice, betray Jesus in order to get more, more, more. Many of us were caught in this lie. We determine our worth by our increase. But Jesus has a way to teaching us so much in the decrease. 
but some of us aren't willing to allow God to teach us this message. I've been reading a fascinating book called The Congregation in a Secular Age, and he makes this, this point that Silicon Valley is shoving this message down our throats. Innovate or die. You always need the new thing, the next thing, the best thing, more, more, more. And here's why I think we all love it. Because when you don't have a creator, when you don't have an ultimate purpose, you might as well, what you have to do is distract yourself with the now as much as possible. You might as well get the new gadget to help you have a little bit more hope, a little bit longer. New, new, new. And it robs us of ever even enjoying what God has put in front of us because we're always setting ourselves up for a better future. But again, without the resurrection, maybe this is a path we're taking. Maybe we should actually distract ourselves with the next innovation because if Jesus didn't come and rise again, death will defeat us all. You might as well own things while this life lasts because there's no life after this one. But you and I will find out this meaningless life, it eventually leads to self-rejection you know it's not enough. Matthew 27, verse 5, Judas notices that. He betrays Jesus in order to get 30 pieces of silver, and then he goes, he throws out the silver back to the chief priests, and he goes to commit suicide. Because, friends, you and I, I pray that our eyes will be open to see. Accelerating and innovating may feel good in the moment, but it will not be good for your eternity. The meaningless life lives to accelerate and innovate, but it's never enough. Check out this quote by Andrew Root in the Congregation of Secular Age. He says, In a secular age, sin is my inability to optimize myself. We feel guilty that we're not the person we should be, or worse, could have been. We feel guilty because we've blown the opportunity to be a different, more interesting, more meaningful self. Anybody else feel that weight? Right? There were so many paths available to the self. And we worry we've chosen the wrong ones. This gives birth to the common cultural mantra, which I've said before, right? It is never too late. This warms us in the cold winter of our guilt, though we also wonder if it's really true. I want us to see, without the resurrection, this is the only hope we have. Is it too late? We're always stressing. We can never rest. We have to keep optimizing ourselves, and that is a hamster wheel that leads to so much depression and discouragement. But the gospel has a better message, amen? And this is why we're gathering together, because if this life is the only one we had, the only options we seem to be having are just to be mean or to live meaningless pursuits of getting the next best gadget. But there's actually one more. I want us to look and zone in on Peter. This is, so we have the mean life, we have the meaningless life. You know the word mean is going to be in it, all right? So the next one is the means well life. The means well life. I was told my wife yesterday, it's like, here, is this too cheesy? Is this too tray? You know, with the mean, mean, mean. And, but I, my originally had the mean good life. She's like, that's not grammatically correct at all. Okay, so what it means well, got it, all right? This is Simon Peter here. And I want us to zero in on verse 31 of Matthew chapter 26. Again, Matthew 25 death or life. Let's look at these people and the, the roads they're choosing. And so far, it seems to be hopeless. But verse 31 in Matthew chapter 26, we now see in an encounter of Jesus with Peter. And I think a lot of us would think, okay, Peter's the one. This is who we identify with. It says, then Jesus said to them, tonight all of you will fall away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This obviously disappointed the disciples. 
But he says, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Next verse. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away because of you. I love that. Even if all these other clowns are just terrible people, I will never fall away. He's that guy. I'm great. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. Ready? So he says, truly, I tell you. Remember, last week we talked about how, how Peter was called like the rock of the church and then Satan in the same day. So like, he's awesome. Okay, so truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, tonight. So he's saying, I'll never. He goes, okay, but tonight it's going to happen. Tonight, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him. I just think he's an amazing, dramatic person, right? Even if I have to die, right? I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Go to the next, okay. Verse 69, we're jumping ahead. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. So just know, the betrayal has happened. Now Jesus is on trial. So Peter's sitting outside the courtyard. He wants to see what's going on. A servant girl approached him and said, you were with Jesus, the Galilean, too. But he denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about. Next verse. When he had gone out to the gateway, another woman saw him and told those who were there, this man was with Jesus, the Nazarene. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, those standing there approached and said to Peter, you really are one of them since even your accent gives you away. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And look, and he went outside and wept bitterly. See, a lot of us, we think this Christian life, we think the message is, don't be like those mean religious elites. And amen, okay? We think it's don't be like the meaningless Judas. Amen. But we mess up the gospel when we say, be strong like Peter. Be strong for Jesus. You can do better than Judas and you can do better than the religious elites. But look at Peter. Peter has that same mantra. Following Jesus is all about being strong for God. I'm going to do this for you. And yet, technically... Hear this out. Technically, Judas betrayed Jesus once. Peter did it three times. Write this down. The means well life tries to do better for God, but winds up really bitter with God. See, a lot of us, we're not gathering together. Here's what, this is the beauty of the resurrection, we're not gathering together to say we are better than the world. We're going to be stronger for God. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to do all of this more. That is not the message of the gospel. If that was the message of the gospel, God would never have to come down and do it all himself. There's a song I was listening to recently by King's Kaleidoscope. And he says this, and it's so helpful for us to identify with this. It says, Judas sold you for 30. I have done it for less. Peter denied you three times. I have denied you more. So again, I want us to make sure this message isn't be strong for God. This message of being strong for God makes you quite bitter. But again, without the resurrection, maybe this is a path we're taking. Maybe the life we're called to live is just try to be good enough for God, and hopefully you'll make it in. And friends, let me tell you, 
it's proof that Jesus had to come down, die for us, and raise again, you and I will never be good enough. Peter himself says, I will never deny you my entire life. And two and a half hours later, a rooster's crowing, okay? Right? We are not strong in and of ourselves. And here is the good news. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to bring dead people to life. Our strength is in the cross and the cross alone and the resurrection alone. If you, again, if we had enough time, we've already read so much scripture, but you read the rest of the scriptures and God used Peter's life powerfully. God used Peter in Acts 2 to preach and thousands came to the Lord. He had that strength, but check this out. All, the resurrection is what reconstructed Peter's faith because it deconstructed Peter's strength. I'm gonna say this one more time. The resurrection reconstructed Peter's faith by deconstructing Peter's strength. Peter was following God. He was saying, okay, it's about, I'm strong for you, God. I'm gonna die for you. I'm gonna live for you, God. That's why I deserve heaven. But then it clicked for him when the resurrection happened. He was weeping bitterly, but Jesus rose again. He recognized, oh, that's what Jesus meant. I am not strong for God. God is strong for me. I don't have to defeat death in the name of God. God has defeated death for me. This is the beauty of the gospel. Now, here's the cool thing. As I was reading through Matthew 26, I was like, God, this is Easter, so I got to do kind of good today, right? So God, what is it? What's the angle here? And I was so blessed by this because the message of the gospel is not if you're mean, you'll never get saved. If you live this meaningless life, there's no hope for you. See, I believe Jesus, when he died on the cross, he was even dying so that the chief priests could be forgiven. He died so that Judas can be forgiven. The only difference, Peter was the only one who received that forgiveness. But don't, don't get me wrong here. Jesus wanted each of them to be forgiven. And maybe I don't know where you're at. You've been trying to live the mean life. Just scrutinize. Just, uh, the only way you find hope is being better than other people. So you tear people down. Maybe it's just meaningless. You're just trying to do the next best thing. You're trying to distract yourself. You never really think about the meaning of life. You don't think about death. You're just trying to have fun. Kind of hard to do this year, though, right? Maybe you just mean well. You thought, just come in here. Okay, God, I'm, I did it for you. I love you. You better love me now. There's a better hope for all the different groups in the room. And it's the grace and love of Jesus. See, Judas and the religious elites, they weren't willing to deconstruct their strength. So it led to them deconstructing their faith. God will, he puts situations in your life and he's calling you to deconstruct your strength. In other words, get rid of it. Flee your strength because you don't have to be good enough and you can never be good enough. This is why I introduce to you what I beg you to do tonight if you haven't done before. Don't live the mean life. Don't live the meaningless life. Don't live the means well life. Live the meaningful life. What is that? What makes Peter's life meaningful compared to Judas and the religious elites? I'm glad you asked. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, I want you to go there. We're going to close with this. I believe the only thing that made Peter different was he remembered what Jesus said at the Lord's Supper and he received it. Look at this. 
It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is a picture. He's going to die on the cross for our sins. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He is saying, I am about to die on the cross. My body is going to die. My blood is going to pour out. And in that, your sins will be forgiven. Now, why? This is so cool. Why did Jesus use food to point to the message of Easter? First of all, food's incredible. Amen. But why did he do that? There's two reasons. Look, like food, look, the resurrection is on offer to those in need and to those who will eat. Should be on your screen. The resurrection is on offer to those in need and to those who will eat. What do I mean? The resurrection is on offer to those in need. In other words, the religious elites didn't think they were hungry. The religious elites thought they were good enough. They're not going to partake in what Jesus is offering. Those are for all the people who aren't good. So with that, some of us, we don't recognize how needy we truly are, so we miss out on the grace of God. May we be like Peter, who weeps bitterly over our sin and acknowledges our great need. Wait a minute. I don't have to be strong for God. God was strong for me. Give me the food. Not only that, like food, it only blesses you when you know you need it. But furthermore, it only blesses you when you eat it. See, Judas, he loved being around the person of Jesus, but he never partook in the person of Jesus. He never ate it. Just like for you and me, when we look at good nutritional food, just because I understand it from afar that it's good for me, does no good for me if I don't take it for myself. Amen? Even though, don't you wish it worked that way? Amen? Right? When you see food, just looking at food from afar, acknowledging how good it is for you. Some of us have been doing this our whole life. We're acknowledging Jesus is good for people. Jesus is good. Amen? But have you recognized and have you received his goodness for yourself? This is why Jesus has the Lord's Supper. Cling to me. Partake in me. Look, this truth isn't powerful. The resurrection isn't powerful until it gets personal. Have you made it personal in your own life? I love it. Like Peter, may we cling to Christ and his strength in our place. So what is the meaning to life? What is the meaningful life on offer? It's the last point. The meaningful life grieves our sin and clings to Christ. This is the hope of the gospel. The mean life doesn't think there's anything beyond this. The mean life thinks that they have to be better than others, and so they scrutinize to get recognized. Hopeless. The meaningless life keeps accelerating and innovating. Well, friends, I don't know if you know this, we're all going to die, right? Eventually, things won't work like they used to. Gravity always seems to win, except on Jesus. Amen. We have nothing. It's meaningless. And it may feel good for a time to distract ourselves, but I do think God has graciously gave us. I don't think, I don't, I think he graciously has used this last year to point us to the reality. We need something better than a distraction. And maybe you've been trying to live the means well life. 
you thought life was all about being better for God. And here's what happens. When you try to be better for God, you eventually will get bitter with God. Because there will be people who aren't as good as you that seem to get it better. They seem to do better in life. But when you recognize life is all but grace, we recognize that there is a life after this one because Jesus took all of our sin, died on the cross, and rose again. He defeated sin, he defeated Satan, and he defeated death itself. Friends, this gives us true meaning in life. There's an old hymn that says, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. I won't sing the rest, but the last line, and life is worth the living just because he lives. This Easter Sunday, I beg you to ask yourself the question, what has been the meaning to your life? Have you been pursuing the mean life, the meaningless life, the means well life? Well, friends, will you lay down your strength and allow God to fight for you. This is the hope of the resurrection. This is why we gather every week and sing. Because God is good. And he is good in our place.